0: Good morning, please join me in the book of John we will be in chapter 1 reading verses 1 through 5 In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God He was in the beginning with God All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made In him was life and the life was the light of men The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. This is Advent season. And Advent means coming or arrival. And it's designed to be a preparation period leading up to Christmas Day, the time that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I'm interested in this whole concept of Advent and how we got here. In fact, this last week I did some research as to the history of Advent and how it came about. You'll be perhaps interested to know, as I was, that um, Christmas began, or really Advent rather, began during the first and second century. And it came about in in large part because Constantine built a, a chapel, now the... Um, the Chapel of the Nativity or the Cathedral of the Nativity, and declared Jesus' birth date to be a national holiday. And then Julius, the Bishop of Rome, declared December 25th to actually be that birthday. Uh, Now, interestingly enough, Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. In other words, Advent is supposed to be the kind of preparation that Lent is to Easter. And you'll know that in Lent, you have seasons of fasting, um, preparation, and introspection. Now, does that fit how you do Christmas? <laughs> fasting, introspection, reflection, that's thats really not... I can't imagine showing up at my grandma's house saying, sorry, grandma, this year I'm fasting. I just wouldn't go over well, would it? So this whole idea of Advent is really curious to me, and I, I found that, that um, it, it developed kind of in an interesting way. Do you know that um, December the 25th was uh, this date picked by Julius in large part to combat a pagan holiday? to give Christians an alternative as to what was going on in their culture. In fact, as a part of that pagan worship uh, service or that uh, pagan celebration, there were um, things like holly in terms of decorations and mistletoe and and even Christmas trees. So just so you know, when you're gathered around your Christmas tree, it's a pagan... No, Merry Christmas, right? Well, what happens is always happens in culture that we embrace things within our culture and they become part of our own celebrations and things of that sort. But what's interesting to me is that Advent, in terms of this reflection and thought and even deprivation, that, that's not at all a part of how we celebrate Christmas during this time of year, is it? It's, it's not how we think about life. It's not really even our, the orientation of our souls. In fact, one of the reasons that we're doing some of the things that we're doing around here during this holiday is that there is a a gravitational pull of our culture. It's not towards deprivation. It's not towards reflection. In fact, it it really is towards anything but that. There's a a gravity, if you will, a pull that happens during this time of year. So what we're trying to do is trying to help you and us pull against that. In fact, if you want to get a good illustration of just the kind of gravitational pull that I'm talking about... You get a sense of what it would be like to be at Walmart the Thursday of Thanksgiving last uh, two weeks ago. I I was there, admitted, uh, looking for sermon illustrations and things of that sort. So, so I showed up at 9.30 at this uh, Walmart store just to see what was going on. And it was a surreal experience. There's thousands of people packed into a store. They're, they're standing in queue lines waiting for their, their very special gift. And then equally remarkable is what happened at 10 o'clock. When the workers said, okay, go. And I was standing by a series of kiosks and just watching people. I mean, it was crazy. A guy who's got a three-year-old daughter in a car is trying to reach for a movie while he's juggling both her and, and then fighting with other people. And, you know, I've always heard this phrase, scratch an adult and you'll find a junior hire. Well... Just go to Walmart at 9.30 on Thanksgiving Day and you'll see it in real life. I mean, unbelievable things. People jockeying for a position, trying to get the exact gift and, and the sense of the amping up of consumerism. The reality is, is that the sales start earlier, the pace gets faster, the commercials get louder, the Christmas songs start earlier, and there is a gravitational pull of this season. And we're going to try and pull you back for the next couple weeks. We're going to use this family devotional guide. We're going to on Sundays um, try and help you understand what this season is all about. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, particularly John chapter 1. We're going to see John's portrayal of the advent of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the aim of John's entire Gospel is found not in chapter 1, but in chapter 20 in verse 31. And here's What John says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in other words, everything that John writes, everything that he says, the intended purpose of it is to help you know both who Jesus is so that you might believe in his name. And so what happens is that John opens his glorious gospel with one of the most theologically robust and philosophical treatments of who Jesus is in the entire Bible. I mean, it begins, In the beginning was the Word. That's so different than how any other gospel writer opens. Think how, how Matthew opens. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Luke begins with various stories surrounding Jesus' birth. Mark begins with simply just launching into his ministry. And John begins with a philosophical, theological um, cosmological argument about who and what jesus is he intends for this introduction to take us all the way back to the very beginning to be able to help us understand what was going on before there ever was anything that was and then he brings us all the way into verse 14 that the word became flesh so we're going to look at this over the next three weeks. This week, looking at John 1, verses 1 to 5, that in the beginning was the Word. And then next week, looking at that, seeing Jesus as the light of the world. And then third, seeing the Word becomes flesh. That that here, this this beautiful idea of who and what Jesus is comes into our world. And He becomes a baby. He becomes human. Our, our aim is to help you understand who Jesus is and to see through John's account how theological and personally reflective really John wants us to be. So this morning we're going to look at six foundational truths regarding who Jesus is. Since John 1 is a foundational chapter, then it includes very foundational things about Jesus. So here's the first one. It is that Jesus is self-existent. Verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. So what John does is he takes us to the very beginning. Now that word beginning means primacy of place, um, primacy of time, primacy of rank. It can mean that something happened before something else. It can mean that something is the starting point of the whole, like the beginning of a page, the beginning, the margin of it. It can also refer to something that is superior. In this case, the word is used to describe Jesus' essence and his existence before all time and creation. The word in the beginning points to the place of prominence and authority that Jesus has. That he is, in a little phrase, he's first of all. He is in the beginning. So John uses this word more than just to refer to a location or a time. In the beginning carries a level of emotional power to it. There's significance to this. There's, there's weight to it. You, you could think of this phrase, in the beginning, in the same way that we might use the word huge. For instance, if you went out to eat this afternoon and you went to a restaurant that gave you a fairly significant meal, you could look at that meal and go, wow, this meal is huge. Or maybe in the last week or so when all that snow came around here, your kids went out and built a snowman or maybe they had a snowball fight. Imagine one of your kids throws a snowball at the other one and it hits them in the forehead. They're like, Oh, it's too big. That snowball was huge. Again, size, scope, scale. But if you're a counselor... And maybe your counselee suddenly gets an aha moment about what's going on in his or her life and they they make a, a, a finally a biblical evaluation of truths within themselves that they're missing and they acknowledge how far off they are. You as a counselor might say, man, that statement that you're learning is huge. That's the concept that we're talking about here in regards to in the beginning. It's not just a reference to time, but there's, there's emotional weight to it. There's significance to it. There is a breadth of it. And John is uh, using this in the beginning not only to refer to the time, location that Jesus precedes, but even more that there's, there's, there's creative power connected to who and what Jesus is. After all, can you think of another place in the Bible where it says in the beginning? Where else does the Bible say in the beginning? Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the book of Genesis introduces the whole concept of God's creative ability and His creative authority and the creation of the world, that there was nothing and then there was something because in the beginning God created it. And what John does is he uses this phrase to capture not only that there is a creation in Genesis one but that now through Jesus there is a new creation that's coming. It's not in any way coincidental that John uses this exact same phrase that's connected to Genesis chapter 1. So what happened through Jesus is significant. It is as significant, even cosmologically altering, as what happened in terms of the creation of the world. In the beginning was the Word, that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who walked the face of the earth, the one who John saw, the one who John heard, this Jesus was in the beginning. He never had a beginning. He was never dependent on anyone, never had an antecedent prior to himself. Instead, Jesus is the one who enters our broken world as the one who's first in rank, first in authority, first in power, first in honor, first in time. He is in the beginning. Take your Bible, go over to 1 John chapter 1, because you need to see how John, in another context, uses the exact same type of language, because this is important to John in terms of his presentation, in terms of who Jesus is. First John 1 John 1.1. Again, introducing a letter, John uses similar language as to what he used in John chapter 1. Here's what it says. That which was from the beginning. Here we have it again. 1 John chapter 1. But notice here how much more personal it is. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, this person who we saw, this person who we touched, this person who healed people, this person who we listened to, this person was in the beginning and he was the very essence of what life is all about. In other words, John takes us all the way back to the very foundations of the foundations, saying, in the beginning was the word. So he is self Existent. That's the first thing. The second truth is also found in verse 1 in that it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So the second implication here, second foundational truth, is that Jesus is the revelation of God. In the beginning was the Word. This title is an intentionally loaded concept, this title, Word. And it really requires that you understand what... John and his readers would mean and wh- by this word and why it would be so incredibly significant. The Greek word logos is the word that we have translated in our Bible as word. And that word, word, is not a bad translation per se, but it doesn't carry the weight for us that it would have carried during John's day. You see, in Greek philosophy, the logos idea was a principle of reason or order that was embedded in the universe. You can think of it sort of like the the center of all things, this Logos idea, this reason or this wisdom principle. Logos was something that was imposed on the, the, the material world and it constituted the soul of man. It was the essence of what life is all about. It was the outward form of which the inward thought was expressed. So if you're a wise person, you express that, those wise statements in wisdom. You, you say wise things in the same way Logos would be, be the expression or the summary of the essence of what life would be all about. So this idea is more than just a word in a grammatical sense. It meant something official, something significant, something really important. Try to think of a good comparison. Perhaps a good comparison might be the word oracle in our language. Because oracle can mean some kind of utterance or some kind of saying but oracle also has another sense where it means almost divine revelation uh something that you receive from a spiritual person or you receive from god himself an oracle is a spiritual word and then you can take it even one step further that sometimes we even might refer to somebody as the oracle because they have so much wisdom so much knowledge or it seems as if by virtue of their skill that they've got a divinely given gift In fact, some of you in the investment worlds will know that Warren Buffett, world-renowned for his wise investing, his frugal lifestyle, and his amazing wealth, has been called the Oracle of Omaha. And again, combining this concept of an idea, a word, and then a person, that's what John is doing with this concept of logos, or the word. It is that Jesus embodies everything that this philosophical idea meant in Greek philosophy. But that's not the only place to look to understand this word. What's even more intriguing is the fact that the concept of the word of the Lord or the word of God is all throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. The Old Testament repeatedly identifies that the word of the Lord is far more than just what God says. When the word of the Lord shows up, significant things happen. For instance, Genesis 1-3, notice what happens when God creates. He creates how? By the word of his mouth, the method of his creation is the word. Or Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Isaiah 38, 4 says, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. So when the word of the Lord came to a prophet, it just wasn't meant for just interesting impartation. Oh, that's the word from the Lord. The word from the Lord meant that things were going to change. That there was a big deal, an announcement, a, a, a significant thing had happened. That God had spoken. Think, for instance, even at, at Mount Sinai, when God speaks to Moses, the people are so afraid that God would speak to them. Not just because they're afraid of what He would say; they're afraid of the consuming presence of God, as mediated through the Word of the Lord. They say to Moses, "Don't speak. To, don't let God speak to us. You speak to us, lest we die." So this word of the Lord is a consuming word. It's a powerful word. Think also of the New Testament where it says that the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So the word of the Lord is not just some some impartial, inactive, passive word. The word of the Lord is filled with powerful change, powerful impact. And so when John says that the word of the Lord is the word himself, Jesus, he is saying something very significant, that God is entering the world with power and with might, and God is going to declare something to his people, not just through his spoken word, but now through his son, who is the word. The book of Isaiah, reflecting on this, tells us of the power of the Word of God. Look at what it says. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, the Word of God is a powerful word. So John grabs this theme of the word and shows us that the word of God, representative in the presence, represented rather in the presence of Jesus, mediates the very presence of God to his people. So the word of God is more than just God imparting information to his people. The word of God in John 1 means the combination of revelation and of power. And of personal relationship. So Jesus now becomes the ultimate revelation of God to mankind. And in this revelation of God to mankind, he he shows us what God is like. He himself embodies what God is, and he speaks the Word of God. He lives the Word of God, and this Word that now comes through Jesus, as the Word becomes the means by which people now can understand what God is like and also, as we'll see in a moment, receive the life that he gives. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, he's not just saying a small little word. He's saying a huge statement that in the beginning was the revelation of all of what God is for us and in us and through us. And it all has now come through one person. And one moment in time, it has come through this person named Jesus. The writer of Hebrews captured this as well. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. text says, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. All the while, God's been speaking to His prophets. But now He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His Power. So Jesus' presence in the world is not just simply him telling us what God is like. It is that he, by his very essence, is the exact imprint of all that we need to know of what God is all about, like, and what he says. Third, text tells us that Jesus is fully God. It says, In the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it's repeated in verse 2, where it says, He was in the beginning with God. All of that to say that the Bible clearly tells us that He is completely divine. He is fully God. To say that the Word was with God, with God, means two things. First, it means accompaniment. It means that Jesus was with him intimately, closely, connected to the Father. With doesn't just mean nearby. It means closeness. It means oneness with. It'd be like if somebody said, look, man, I am with you. It doesn't mean just like next next to you. It means with you in heart, with you in soul, with you in the essence of who you are. It, it's, it's what a husband and wife who have been married 50 years feel for one another. I am with you. I'm one with you, which is why I've seen and I'm sure you have as well that folks who are older, when a spouse passes away, it isn't that long until sometimes their surviving spouse passes away as well. There's something like that dies with inside of them because they are with each other. And this is the concept that Jesus is in regards to the Father. With God also means relationship. Their their oneness and closeness is expressed in this relationship between the Father and the Son, and this oneness of relationship is central to everything that Jesus does on the earth. John ten twenty seven, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, that's a tremendous promise. But it's conditioned on the next statement in John 10, which says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says this, I and the Father are one. In other words, everything that he is, I am and that's what the next phrase means. Not only in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, then the text says the Word was God. The Word was God. This idea of being was God is directly connected to the even the structure of the Greek language in the text. The Greek language has the Word was God, not the Word was the God, as if Jesus was the God, only God, rather, but the word was god meaning everything that god in his triune form is is exactly what jesus is that the word jesus shares all of the divine characteristics that's why one contemporary translation renders the passage what god was the word was and so john wants us to understand that jesus was and is fully god why does he have to be fully god he has to be fully god Because if Jesus isn't fully God, then there's no complete redemption. He has to be human in order for redemption to apply to human beings, but he has to be God in order to provide a once-for-all atonement. So Jesus is fully God. He was the revelation of God. He's self-existent. Fourth, Jesus is also creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made the text tells us that jesus is the active agent in creation in fact the first john tells us this positively and then flips it to tell us negatively all things were made through him that's the positive and then flips it tells us negatively and without him was not anything made that was made in other words everything that exists owes its life and allegiance owes its very existence to christ jesus was the agent who was doing the creation There's no world outside of Jesus' creative authority. Nothing exists apart from Him. Absolutely nothing. And the significance of this is that if Jesus is the Creator and everything is created by Him, that He has the authority to tell that creation what they should do and what they should not do. That He is supreme and the ruler of all things. And and throughout the New Testament, this idea of Jesus' creator status is affirmed look at these two passages colossians 1 for by him all things were created in heaven or on earth and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and don't miss this and for him And then notice Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Again, there's that authority. Through whom also he created the world. So there's this direct connection between Jesus' authority and his power as creator. This is important for two reasons. Treason and worship. John is setting up something that he will talk about later on in verse 14. He will say that Jesus came unto his own, his own things, his own people, his own creation. He comes unto the thing that he created. He came to his own stuff. And the crazy thing is, his own things rejected him. It's one thing to reject somebody. It's another thing to reject the creator of your soul and your life. It's a tragedy and an irony that human beings rejected and they killed the very one who had created them. And what John is doing is setting us up here to show us that sin is so bad, so bad that it would cause creatures to commit treason against the one who gave them life. And the second reason why this creative authority is important is because of worship. That as creator... Jesus deserves the worship due him from his creatures. The beauty of heaven will be the fact that here we see the glorious Saviour who comes in flesh and then is rejected, and then in his death redeems the very people who should have worshipped him in the first place, but instead rejected him, and then he redeems them to call him call them his own and to make them his children. no wonder that the book of Revelation breaks out in praise that sounds like this. This is Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the marvel of heaven is the fact that here is this Jesus who comes to earth. He's the revelation of God. He's fully God, fully divine. And yet he's rejected. He's beaten. He's crucified in order that he might redeem these wicked people called human beings on planet Earth. And then for all of eternity, it is that these human beings declare the glorious praise that is due his name. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. He's creator. Notice fifth, Jesus is also here the Savior of mankind. Verse 4 says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here he begins, John, to, to change the metaphor a bit. In him was life. And life was the light of men. So here we have Jesus who is this self-existent, God-revealing, fully divine. He's the universe-creating Son of God. And he's also the one who comes through him to provide life to sinful people. It's it's an unbelievable package that John is presenting to us about all of who and what Jesus is. And so when we when we say things like we're igniting a passion, that's our mission, to, for you to follow Jesus, it's important for you to know the fully orbed reality of who he is. And John presents him to you that in the beginning was this Word. This Word was with God. This Word was God. And in him was life. And this life was the light of men. Life and light are two concepts that John loves to use in reference to Jesus. And again, back to John, 1 John 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And then he says this, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. In other words, this word was not a hidden word, it was broadcast. John says we saw it, we heard it. In John's case, he touched Jesus, he heard him. And this life, this light, produces the possibility of eternal life. Now, in the next, next week, we'll unpack all of what it means that this light has shined into darkness, but... John simply wants to introduce to us the idea that Jesus, as the light of the world, is invading the darkness of our human existence. So you know what you're really celebrating this time of year? You're celebrating that you were in darkness and God shone a wonderful light into your life. As you're celebrating the birthday of Jesus, remember that what you are celebrating is that God intervened in your dark world. For some of you that happened when you were a small child, others, others happened when you were a teenager, some of you happened when you were an adult, some of you happened just a couple weeks ago. What happened is that God invaded the darkness of your world. He came and he's shown the glorious reality of who Jesus is into the darkness of your heart and as a result in belief and in faith you received life, eternal life through Jesus. So I mean, when you think about the full aspect of all of what Jesus is, it's unbelievable. And then finally, the text tells us, six that Jesus is the conqueror of sinful unbelief. Verse 5. I love this text. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, other translations render it has not apprehended it, has not understood it. I think the best translation is has not overcome it. What is John talking about here? Well, he's talking about the fact that that Jesus not only was there in the beginning, not only is he fully God, not only is the the revelation of God, not, not only is he the Savior of mankind, but he comes and he conquers. And what does he conquer? He conquers sinful unbelief, that Jesus comes to bring transformation. In the same way in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates, what is the first thing that he brings? He brings light. He he creates light and separates light from darkness. In the same way, Jesus comes to dispel darkness. Jesus comes to address the darkness of the human heart. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says this, For God... Who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see the connection between Genesis 1 and John 1, between creation in the first place, and then the recreation that Jesus is going to bring? He's saying the same God who spoke and the universe was divided in terms of light and darkness, is the same God who speaks words of light into the dark human heart, such that through Jesus you could see the glory of God in the work the life of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of all the things in this text, this, I love this probably the most. That here we have darkness and light, which are opposites, but darkness and light are not equal. Darkness is penetrated by a small amount of light. And here is this little baby born in a nondescript town in Bethlehem from a city you'd think nobody would ever do anything great out of Nazareth. And here is this child, the word that became flesh. He grows up and through this light, now God offers redemption to those who put their faith in him. It's just remarkable that a small amount of light can penetrate the darkness and a little bit of light can change everything. You ever had that happen? where you can't see something, and then suddenly you got a little light, and like, oh, here's what's going on. In fact, you know, on my, um, on my iPhone, I have, um, I have lots of, uh, of apps, and you probably have your favorite apps, and we could discuss which app is your favorite. I'll tell you which one was my favorite right here. This particular app has saved me more time, more money, more—I use this app more than anything else. In fact, just last night I was using it, and my boy said, Dad, that's a really cool app. And that made me feel really good. So, yeah, it, 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 it's this app. It's the flashlight app where I flick a little button. You have this one? And suddenly I got a light. It, it was just unbelievable how many times—I used this last night— Checking out which Christmas tree to buy. I was like doing like this and looking around the side. It was dark out. Couldn't see the tree. Just the other day, the, my, my car wouldn't start. So I was out and I couldn't see what was going on. So I turned on the, turn on the light and I'm looking inside the engine and here's son, hold my light. He's looking at this. And last Sunday after I got done with third service, I was like, what's going on? I'm looking in my throat trying to figure out what's going on in there. It's a great little tool. And what it does is it dispels the darkness. It makes things clear. It helps me to see what's really going on. And this is what the gospel does. The Bible tells us exactly what's going on. The Bible tells us that we're some awful sinners. We have committed treason against the Son of God by virtue of our sins and then sheds the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus by saying, but those who put their faith in Christ can be made new creatures. The same God who spoke at the universe teemed with life is the same God who can now call over you His child and call you justified and call you righteous and call you holy even though everyone, including you, know you're not. It's unbelievable, this transforming light and the power of what we find here is that John says the darkness does not overcome it. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that. Because I, when I look around in the world things happen and things happening, stuff going on, and sometimes I think, you know what, darkness is getting really dark. And yet the text says that the darkness has not overcome it. Translate that to your life and mine. That means no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night, God in His mercy through Christ can forgive you and make you a new person today. The light of the gospel is that powerful, that significant, and that glorious. So the message of John's gospel and the entire Advent season is simply this, that this self-existent revelation of, of the triune God, this fully divine creator and savior of the world who has come to the earth comes to conquer darkness and unbelief. So the reason for this season, the purpose of Advent, the purpose of John's Gospel, and the reason that this church exists all center on this one point, and that is to call you to believe in Jesus. To call you to believe in Him. To call you to live in and through this belief. So you might wonder, so, so what do you have to do to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe? Here's what it means. It means first that you acknowledge that God is your creator, that you know that God defines what's right and wrong. Because you know within your heart there are things that you do that make you feel guilty. You know where that comes from? That comes from a creator who's designed things to make guilt be a gift to you. A warning sign to tell you there's a God and you messed up. And so the first step is acknowledging that there's a God who defines what's right and what is wrong. Secondly, it is an understanding that we live in a dark world of unbelief. And we've expressed that unbelief personally. We've in effect said, God, you don't write the rules, I do. And so we did our own thing. And we started that from the very moment we were born in life. No one taught you how to not believe. No one taught you how to sin. That's just a part of the fabric of who and what we are as a product of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We live in a naturally dark world of unbelief. And the first step in moving towards Christ is acknowledging my heart is filled with really, really bad stuff. Not even this the stuff that you've done. I mean the stuff of who you are. What does it mean to believe? It means that you believe, third, that the light of Jesus can dispel the darkness. It means that you would realize that God is creator. There's really bad stuff in my heart. I can't change my heart. I can't change who I am. And believing that Jesus, in faith, saying, he can change me. He took my sins and he could change me from the inside out. The light of Jesus can dispel the darkness. Jesus put it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody goes to heaven, no one is forgiven of their sins, no one's made a new creation, no one ever really changes apart from the powerful work of Jesus. And then here's the beautiful thing, finally, it is that we believe that Jesus can make everything new. As transforming as the first creative moment when God spoke and the universe teemed with life so Jesus can and will renew everything. Listen listen to me. He can make you completely new. He can take the physical who you are and change the inside working of your heart. He can give you new desires, new appetites, new longings. He makes you feel guilty about things you've never felt guilty about, so you run from those things and run to what's right. He shows you the beauty of who He is for you, gives you new longings, new joys, puts a new song in your mouth, and the most beautiful thing in all the world is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians five seventeen: If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. The, 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 the power of what the gospel is is it takes the old you, and while you are still there physically, there is a new person who's rule in the house. You see, and that's what some of you need today. More than a job change, more than a different spouse, more than a different environment, more than a new drug, more than some sort of new class. You know what you need? What you need is a new you, and you can't bring that you can buy all the books and the store, you can go to the self-help section as long as you want, read everything you want, but at the end of the day, there is no hope in you. The only hope is outside of you. And John puts it this way, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of man. Meaning the only hope for you is the light that comes from the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so what am i calling you today i'm calling you straight up i'm calling you to turn from who you are and turn to jesus that's what i'm calling you to do i'm calling you to realize that this season is not about all the materialistic pursuits to get presents and stuff and to give gifts and it it all fades and you know that you you grew up as a kid you got christmas gifts and then you is that it wait till next year for this thing it's a shell game merry christmas Right? So it, 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 is, it is not everything that it, our culture designs or says that it is. Instead, there is something embedded within this season that is really important for us to hear and for us to receive. And today I call you, I ask you, invite you, plead with you that today could be a day when you say, the light of the glory in the face of Jesus, I understand this, and today can be the day when Christ makes you a new creature. And if you know this truth, If this is something that you've embraced, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then my goodness, this should be the season. Not just for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. This should be the season where you meditate and think about and triumphantly declare that this light has shone into the darkness and the darkness didn't win, Jesus did. So I don't know what the darkness is in your life. I don't know what's going on. Maybe a a very bleak Christmas as you consider the holidays. You may have a huge issue going on, but the reality is if you know Christ, the darkness has not overcome the light. The light wins. Here we have Jesus, the self-existent revelation of the triune God who's fully divine, he's the creator of the whole universe, the savior of the world. He comes and he conquers the darkness of unbelief. And when John wants to announce this message, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Father, pray that You would help us to not only believe this truth, but to receive it. And to receive it now, to receive it today. I pray that this robust and weighty passage in John chapter 1 would be a call to conversion today. There might be some today who would say, God, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I have made a mess of my life. And I cannot change the inside of my soul. I've sinned against you and I receive the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as my atonement. And I invite you, Lord Jesus, to come into my heart and to change me from the inside out. I give you my life. I want you to take over my soul. And Lord, I pray that that heart and that prayer could become the light and the life of men and women today. Oh Lord, give us grace, give us mercy to believe and to trust and to rely upon You. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, two things as you go. First, if you need someone to pray with, they're up here at the front. Some folks will be here to pray with you. Secondly, don't forget to pick up your devotional guide as you make your way out this morning. That'll be of help to you and your family, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.